0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at Bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
2: Greetings, comrades, and this is a special episode of Man of Steel series, where I have been lucky enough to invite a friend of mine and a colleague, Sebastian Major, from our Fake History podcast. Greetings, comrades. If you haven't listened to his show, do it now. He's here because he's just finished a three-parter series about Stalin myths. And hey, in the world of, well, doing serious podcasts about Stalin, there are not so many people around that you can discuss these things with. And um from my own perspective, as you might have listened on my previous episodes, the Stalin thing is very difficult to do because he literally warps reality and he had the power to change photos and everything and his own birth date. So I was wondering, Sebastian, tell us about your own experiences.
1: Probably don't read Russian. So how did you went through this whole histological nightmare, to be honest? It's a great question. Uh, first of all, uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's cool to finally, uh, speak with you in person, not just, uh, over the little messenger apps. Uh, that's really cool. But, uh, yeah, how did I wade through the, the messy, uh, uh, historiography? Well, uh, what I always do when I'm researching the show is, uh, I kind of rely on really excellent secondary sources. So I looked at which historians were considered the most trusted. And also which historians were considered the least trusted because for the purpose of finding out the myths about a particular figure, you kind of have to read the bad stuff along with the good stuff. So stuff that I found to be sort of factually solid, there was a new biography on Stalin by a historian named Oleg Klevniuk. And uh, I I found that to be a particularly balanced take on Stalin and it's uh, it's been getting uh, pretty strong reviews uh, then there's Stephen Kotkin, who's sort of the probably the best known American scholar of Stalin. What actually got me interested in the whole thing was uh, reading a book by an author that I know, you know, because he's been on the Eastern Border podcast oh, yeah, is uh, John Waterlow, who wrote It's Only a Joke, Comrade, the book about Soviet humor under Stalin. And uh, after reading John's book, I was like, Oh man, this is such a rich topic. There's so much here around the myth being put out by Stalin's government versus how people received it, how people understood it, how it turned up in their jokes. And so that made me curious from there. And then you kind of get into other historians who are known to be a little more fast and loose. Uh so there's a British historian who writes great books about Stalin, but they're a little more um popular history called uh Simon Sibag Montefiore. Yeah, I've read him on my show as well, yeah. And his stuff's pretty good. Like it's not I don't think he's a uh peddling lies about Stalin, but he's uh he's just more willing to sort of give voice to stuff that might not be like rock solid in the historical record just for the sake of telling a good story. And then there are absolutely terrible people like uh, Edvard Radzinski, I don't know if you've ever read his stuff. He's a Russian. Apparently, he's a playwright. <laughs> oh yeah, but he's uh, he's written about Stalin and his books. In particular,ly one one of his books was just full of Stalin myths. Like every single, maybe not every single one, but so many of the myths about Stalin. Uh, Radzinski really likes to get into those and is usually like coming down on the side of like, yeah, he was sort of this misformed weird person and he totally was working for the Tsar's secret police. And, uh, basically every myth about Stalin is, is in the Edvard Radzinski book. So. You read a whole lot of stuff, you end up trusting the people that tend to be the best peer-reviewed, and that helps you sort of balance the stuff you read by other people.
2: Yeah, I, I approximately do the same thing, but I also kind of throw in, like I have this, I, I sent you the link uh, earlier, I read this uh, very pro-communist, Russian communistic parties, threat. Right. Now, full biography of Stalin, and I contrast that with, with Montefiore, and I also use the book by Alex de Jong, mm-hmm. I use that quite a lot, I think that's pretty good. Because, well, most of my stuff is either in Latvian or in Russian. So it's kind of interesting what you do. Also, you know, I've got my first-hand sources as well, which are sometimes unreliable. But hey, well, in Latvia, there are still plenty of people around who actually, you
1: know, managed to live under Stalin. So yeah, that's a bit it's interesting too. <laughs> and that's fascinating. And that's the stuff that, you know because i'm, you know, a history podcaster and not like a proper historian. That's the stuff that i don't get into as much as the the primary sources, so i i often have to rely on the people doing the best work on those primary sources and uh, because i don't read russian or ukrainian or any of the other languages that would be, you know, pertinent to the study. I kind of just have to trust the people that are uh, sort of the most respected out there and then balance it against everything else that's floating around. I just want to
2: say that you did a really really good job on all of this. And I went in a bit like skeptical uh, about, you know, how how would you pull this off? But I <laughs> do have to say that the Eastern Border completely approves of your work. Ah. That was great. And uh, I just uh, really like the angle that you took because it's a personal one of mine because you know, I come from a country where we were literally oppressed by Stalin and And it's treated kind of weird, because your humanist angle struck me as as super important. Because if you make someone a complete monster, and you make someone evil, then yeah, it is easy to believe that a monster would do terrible things, but you have to understand that it's way worse philosophically, and has way stronger implications, if you don't forget that those are real humans who are doing these things,
1: I think. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate the kind words, and I wanted to do right by people that were listening that, you know, may have been affected by the Stalinist regime. At the same time, I didn't want to just echo, I guess, the propaganda from the other side. Like, Stalin was a a terrible person. I think the facts of his crimes are pretty damning. However, that doesn't then give us license to lie or exaggerate about about a bunch of other things. Uh, And in fact, I think that weakens the case against him, because as soon as you start feeling like you can just take license and and exaggerate his entire life and people find out about that, then that makes them skeptical about his real crimes. Exactly. You know? Yeah, this is why, by the way, uh, another thing
2: that you haven't been prepared
1: for, I want to talk about the
2: Death of Stalin movie a bit. Sure. Because I watched it and it was pretty funny, but I... Well, for one, if you look at the movie, the the very death result is okay, but when they start like doing mass shootings after Stalin's death and when these people are just mowed down in, in Moscow and they're having this thing, that was disrespectful, I think. That makes the whole case worse i think right because straight after the death of stalin nope there were no 1500 dead in moscow right in the procession of stalin's funeral there were some dead because it turned into a bit of chaos but it wasn't due to mass shootings it was just general mob thing running around and a huge procession mm-hmm. so for example that's one of the examples that i can state that i didn't like because exaggeration like you said it makes the real research and the real facts less believable
1: yeah and uh, yeah I, I watched uh death of stalin as well and while i was sort of doing the episodes and uh, i enjoyed it because i love all the actors that are in it like I, I i love steve buscemi yeah and uh i think gregory tambor is a really funny person i know he's kind of got himself into hot water recently uh, but I think he's a funny person. Uh, and, uh, I also love Michael Palin as a Monty Python fan. It was cool to see Michael Palin in the mix there as Molotov. But yeah, you know, I mean, I think the, the filmmaker had a perspective. They wanted to make Khrushchev look a very specific way, having Khrushchev played by Steve Buscemi. Uh, and actually the way they wrote that character makes Khrushchev very likable in the film. If that was your only, understanding of that era of soviet history you'd come away just being like that khrushchev is just a lovable scamp (laughs) and uh, i think he was a far more complicated character than that lovable scamp who actively participated in famine
2: and mass murders himself because you know during the during the purges and the bad days he basically was running ukraine hmm Guess what? Right. And also, you know, the
1: famous, we will bury you line. Yes, right. Such a noble character indeed, you know. (laughs) Well, you know what? I think like all the people in this story is he's complicated. There's things about Khrushchev that are kind of funny and that make him kind of perhaps more sympathetic than Stalin or some of the other Soviet characters. But as you say, you know, he's got blood on his hands as well. And everyone from this period and or I think almost every world leader you look into, they're going to be complicated. And I think that's the biggest thing I've, I've learned creating my podcast is that no one is all good or all bad. Uh, people are are complicated and the more powerful those people become the more uh, intense those complications usually become and so you know i think all i'm trying to do is just bring nuance and i i think death of stalin because it's a comedy um because they're just trying to tell a story you're not going to get that that level of complexity so i would uh i would recommend people to both watch the film because i actually enjoyed it yeah it was pretty fun but also you know read up too don't let that be your only source for soviet history <laughs>
2: well, uh, what was your like what was your favorite most stunning thing about stalin that you found out cuz for me it was his actually movie obsession yeah and i read the reports on how he actually started to micromanage soviet cinema and and how poor Sergei Eisenstein had to deal with his his big boss telling him no 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 you have to get this actor and that one how he just he had a special assistant picking movies for him right
1: that's just crazy yeah I know. and he, he used to get his uh, top people to you know come over to his his is it pronounced Dasha I got in trouble for not pronouncing this Dacha. correctly Dasha and watch movies and hang out with him and have these long dinners. And that was one thing that the movie really did kind of capture, which is true. Right. That was sort of fascinating. I think the thing that actually caught me was before I started researching this, my perception of Stalin had been that he was this almost a statue of a man. If you know what I mean. Um, Yeah. Just like, I almost imagined him as being like a mute, just like didn't say anything, just impenetrable stare. Uh, or sorry, a penetrating stare, I think is what I was trying to say there. Uh, and was kind of impenetrable himself, right? Just like a man that just like muttered a few words and sent people to death camps. That was my, the idea in my mind. And then the more I read about him, the more you see that he was kind of a romantic, uh, especially in his younger days, you see that he was someone that people liked personally. He was very charming. That surprised me. I didn't expect that. The fact that when he met with, you know, Churchill and FDR and even Truman, people who were all, you know, especially Churchill and Truman were pretty big anti-communists. FDR was, you know, a little more, I guess, centrist. But even they came away. You find these quotes of them being like, you know what? He's not a bad guy. (laughs) Like they were charmed by him in person. Um, which I find pretty remarkable. It was not what I expected. I expected for him to be, I guess, boring. And that was sort of part of his evil that he was this, like, this boring grump of a man who would just sort of like quietly commit atrocities. And the historical record is instead filled with all of these personal recollections of people who liked him, who, who found him charming in person. And um, that was surprising to me. And that complicates your whole idea of someone. It almost would have been easier if he was just like a monster in private all the time. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. But then again, at the same time,
2: Stalin was just, (laughs) I disagreed on the show about the death of his first wife. Of course, you can't blame everything on it, (laughs) but I, I do think it was important for him and and if you, if you think about it, what happened with their son, Yakov Djukashvili. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't mention that on the show, but that's one of the most tragic destinies of anyone, really. Yeah. Because, you know, he served in the army and, and how he got captured and how, like, Stalin refused to exchange his own son yeah. for an officer and, and how he died there. Yeah. It was just crazy. By the way, uh, when I spoke about this, according to the official German account, he died by running into an electric fence. Right. In the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. However, uh, latest sources here, some declassified files, basically show that uh, he apparently was shot by a guard for refusing to obey orders. Apparently, while good old pal, little Uncle Joe, <laughs> Yakov, was wandering around, he was uh, told to order back into the barracks under the threat of being shot. And yeah, well, the younger Jugoshele basically refused and apparently shouted, shoot. And then the guard shot him in the head. <laughs> wow. It was kind of crazy. That's That's crazy. That's crazy. And the documents then show that after this death, then uh, Stalin apparently saw that, hey, his son, which he was really estranged from, had finally done something honorable. And then, you know, in his later memoirs, Stalin, well, after his son got shot in the head, was, you know, viewed a bit better, slightly. Right.
1: Fun times. Yeah. You know what? There's there was so much to discuss. And like, I didn't even get to talk about World War Two at all. And yeah, it's hard to know what made Stalin, Stalin. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, he starts out as friendly Koba,
1: yeah. the revolutionary, and and then then there's this somehow. Yeah, I mean, he does show a remarkable coldness to his family all the way through. Um, and then, like, you know, I talked a little bit about the suicide of his second wife. And, you know, yeah, there's there's one whole belief that just goes like, She killed herself because Stalin was just so cruel to her, either ignored her or when he did pay attention to her was kind of verbally abusive, you know, picked on her. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, more more evidence that he was not a great guy. I just I guess what I was sort of saying before was that I, I just thought that every recollection would be like that. Mm. That every recollection would be like, he's the guy that doesn't get his own son out of the prisoner of war camp. He's the guy that is so cold and distant from his wife that she kills herself. Uh, he's the guy that, you know, after that, barely speaks to his kids. Um, that is true. But
2: he's also super charismatic. Yes, right. In some weird way. And and he and he hangs out in the Kremlin parties and drinks with his generals. and And yeah, like you said, he
1: is just Awesome in diplomacy as well. Yeah. It's just so strange. It is strange. He's a person of never ending contradictions. And uh, that was perhaps my biggest takeaway. And it's not even really a satisfying takeaway, just being like, well, turns out he was complicated. Um, but uh, but there's so many contradictions in his life and so many contradictions in his own political ideology, and it can become dizzying. Well, one thing that um, also that you probably didn't check, because
2: we're getting into the really crazy myths about Stalin territory here. See, one of these things is that Stalin basically built a bunch of high-rise buildings in Moscow one of which is the building of Moscow State University uh-huh. and he wanted to like rebuild Moscow completely and just do crazy stuff there and he also approved of the metro building and everything right and one of the craziest theories go that Joseph Stalin while planning the buildings in Moscow used the mm, Moscow astrological map (laughs) Which was created in the 18th century by one Jakob Bruce, apparently, who was a a scientist, an astronomer, an astrologist, and he... Built the first observatory in Russia in seventeen oh two. Okay. So there are, um, and I'm quoting it here <clears throat> that uh, there are people who think that just because in the main line there there are these twelve primary stations, and apparently that symbolizes zodiac. Oh. And Bruce had uh, believed that Moscow must be built in like circles because that is the safest geometrical figure for the city, and apparently Bolsheviks had realized this idea while building their Sadovoy Boulevard. Uh, This is uh, what I read in a newsroom site, which is a news site, but apparently uh, a mm, historian and a guide of Moscow, Irina Sergeyevsk, states this. And apparently mm, Stalin had an intention to build exactly nine high-rise buildings, which would then symbolize the amount of planets and the Soviet system, ah. the solar system, sorry, Soviet system, solar
1: system, same thing, really. <laughs> yeah, they would tell you that, you know, each one of those planets was a uh, itself a, a self-governing Soviet republic.
2: one thing really that that happened was, and this is again another thing from the weirdest parts of the Russian internet, there is a idea that uh, they wanted to build the so-called House of the Soviets Yes, right. In place of the exploded cathedral of christ the savior yeah and they wanted to build like a 400 meter tall monster yeah when they wanted to
1: put like a hundred meters high rotating
2: lenin statue on top of
1: this yeah i've seen the drawings of it it's it's a pretty fantastical thing the drawings look like something out of lord of the rings If Lenin was, uh, like, uh, Sauron. (laughs) And this gets crazier. Stalin,
2: apparently, according to this uh, nice lady, whom I totally believe has, like, full credentials, apparently Stalin wanted to put his uh, remains after his death, and check this out. Acquire the immortality of the soul due to the whole energy of the Soviet people being focused in this pyramid, because everyone would obviously worship
1: Lenin. Wow, I mean, Stalin could just assemble some of that. That's that's interesting. I didn't get into the kind of occult side of Stalin, which is too bad because you know if you've listened to other episodes of my show, you know that I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by the history of the occult. So that's interesting. I mean, honestly, nothing else that I read about Stalin really suggested that he was super into zodiac signs or occult energy, but there you go. This one Russian historian believes that he was. Russian historian believes that he was. I mean, this is just one of the myths about him. And it's like full on Russian internet because all this
2: supernatural thing is big because we know that Brezhnev actually had his own personal psychics and stuff. Oh, yeah? (laughs) And that Vanga got respected. Yeah. And other thing is that about the Soviet house, which is was supposed to be stalin's monumental work yeah the world war ii stopped building it right yeah they had the base built and the world war ii stopped it and then uh, they changed the whole grounding and the base in a swimming pool called moscow and you know world war ii uh, stopped the plans but stalin wanted to continue building these massive pyramid shapes and high rises and then you know return to building that and at this point well um Russian sources state again that um, all the high rises, which later on would try to build, all the bases, like the first blocks were apparently placed in 7th of September at 1 p.m. 1947. And, quote, <clears throat> modern astrologers are convinced that some of them had been calculated this in the past, and Gregory Gurdjieff, who was apparently a very popular astrologer at the time, basically uh, had planned this whole thing out, and, <clears throat> quote, it is possible that Stalin's people looked up this Gurdjieff guy in 1946 so that Gurdjieff would plan this with some astrological theories. Okay. This whole bullshit isn't going to happen on my regular episodes (laughs) (laughs) wow i I, i'm very sorry but i don't don't really buy this into one bit It just shows the cultural perspective of
1: mythologizing stalin yeah and it's funny because i mean in a way it doesn't surprise me um when you prop a person up like this magic isn't usually far around the corner so that's uh that's interesting that's very interesting
0: hey guys annette here As always, a big thank you to all of you tuning in every week and helping us make the show better. If you too want to support the Eastern Border, head over to our Patreon page. If you have a comment or a suggestion for us, write us a message on our Facebook page. To keep up with everything Eastern Border related, follow us on Twitter at Eastern underscore Border. We love to hear back from you guys. A quick reminder, next week Christophs will be speaking at the Sound Education Conference in Harvard. We'd love it if you could make it along on the 3rd of November at 3.30pm at the Divinity Chapel. Christophs has prepared a lot of interesting stuff for you guys and would love to meet you. That's all from me now. See you online and enjoy the show.
2: I mean, one thing that you also don't get really, it's about... It's about Timur. We have to get back to the Tamerlane when it comes to World War II. Right. Because, well, obviously here, the very crazy fact about how they exhumed uh, Tamerlane from from his grave in the 21st of June, then 22nd of June, well, fun stuff starts to happen. Right. Uncle Joe grabs an extra
1: few bottles of vodka that day. Right. <laughs> Well, it's fascinating to me as someone that is interested in historical legacies and how people deal with different things in their past, how different Russian rulers have thought about or presented the period of time when Russia was being dominated by the Mongols and eventually by Tamerlane's people, the, the Timurid Empire, uh, the Golden Horde and all that. Because, you know, some are like, this did happen, but then, you know, we need to really celebrate the czars that broke us away from the so-called like Tartar yoke, right? And then other moments in Russian history, they're like, didn't happen. That whole thing about the Mongols conquering us didn't happen. And I'm fascinated by that because it seems like this great affront to the Russian idea of uh, itself, the, the Russian national character or the myth of Russian nationalism, the idea that the European part of Russia was in any way under the domination of Asian peoples is uh, hard for some folks to stomach. And so either they go, yeah, this happened, but the people that freed us from this are these like great heroes and like Stalin himself was a known lover of history and apparently spoke very favorably about people like Ivan the Terrible, mostly because of how he was, you know, a, a strong leader who got Russia free of the last vestiges of the Tartar yoke. But then later, you know, Soviet sources. And then if you've listened to my podcast on the new chronology. Oh, yeah. I new chronology
2: event about how things didn't happen and how we can like take out a bunch of history in general. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. That's, that's used for ultra nationalist
1: ideas in Russia at this point. Yeah. And the number one thing they want to edit out of their history is that they were ever conquered by the mongols yeah
2: and now stalin himself he was smart he was really intelligent and and he was interested in this stuff and now he himself is being used the same way i mean in russia lately vladimir putin goes and puts down flowers on stalin's grave right he tries to kind of uh, rehabilitate stalin as a form of the time of the greatest power the soviets ever had right this idea that you need this strong man you kind of idolize him yeah, that's that's very scary and at the same time quite interesting, especially you know when you go to Georgia where because Stalin is complete mess and a mixed bag, too. Yeah. But uh, I find it really scary when people try to lie about history and use historical myths to further their own political agendas. But at the same time, if you ask people in Russia in the most recent sociological checks, I uh, which I read uh, about like 65% of Russia believes that Stalin was an awesome and a great man and, you know, gulags never happened and whatever. Right. But the problem with that is that of all the people ever, Russians were the most oppressed by Stalin. Yeah. So that's that's kind of
1: strange. Yeah, well, you know, I recently spoke with uh, John Waterlow, uh, who is the author I was speaking about before, and yeah. uh, we were sort of discussing about, you know, people's, even at the time in the 1930s, there are kind of conflicted feelings about Stalin. Cause I know for many of us looking back, you're like, how did everyone not just hate this guy? And what his study is really great at showing is that some people did. And the average person was quite happy to, you know, joke about how all of their problems were Stalin's fault. However, there was still this belief that he was somehow floating above the politics of the day. And that like all the bad things were maybe the fault of like low level bureaucrats who were just messing things up. And Stalin was just quietly working away in the Kremlin trying to make, you know, perfect communism. Uh, And so it wasn't his fault or so goes the, the myth, right? I saw one documentary where a gulag survivor talks about, hearing that Stalin has died in 1953 and goes to a private place in the Gulag and weeps. And you're like, my God, you were, you were put in this like terrible work camp by this regime. And yet you still wept for Stalin. How is that possible? And, and he describes it in this documentary as being like, he didn't feel like he was there because of Stalin. He felt like he was there because of people in the government who didn't get Stalin's greater vision, that he was there for other reasons, and that Stalin was always still this sort of like almost semi-divine figure. He had bought the propaganda of the cult, even though he was in the gulag. It's bananas. This is the very classical
2: thing about how in Russia, since Tsarist era, and this is just a continuation of Tsarist propaganda, if you could call it, there's this term the Tsar Dobri Bayari or the Tsar is good, he's just surrounded by these foul people. Right. Boyars are bad. The government is corrupt, but you know, our Tsar is the best and the greatest. He obviously can't be bad. Right. My pal Nikki II used this and obviously Stalin, too. And hey, look at Putin.
1: <laughs> Nicky II. Well, yeah. Nicky
2: the II is, is one of my kind of most ironic characters there, because a lot of people also try to portray him as being the good guy.
1: No. Uh, yeah. He's also another kind of worms. I just find Nicholas II to just be kind of a, a sad character, a very kind of pathetic character. It's just someone that is it was completely unequipped to deal with his own times and then made a series of really terrible decisions. The more you learn about him, the more you you just see that he's kind of this devoted family man who really only kind of cares about like the health of his children. But then every time he's faced with a political crisis – he always opts for the most repressive or the decision that's just going to make things worse. I mean, to me, he just seems like a, he's just sad. This, his whole life is just sad to me. Well, then again, we, we, we both can agree that Rasputin was a bit of a douche. <laughs> yeah, Yes. He, he was. Slightly. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. He, he, Rasputin was a bit of a douche. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. You made series about that too. I, I remember did. that. I did. Huh. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by Rasputin because he's so, uh, he's so strange. And again, there's, there's a lot of stories about him that were not true. And there's a big debate within the historical community or within the community of historians about how much influence he actually had over the czar and czarina. And, you know, there's the old belief that he was, had them brainwashed. There's other historians that think that although he had influence, you know, the czar, uh was still making his own decisions, the biggest example of which was getting into World War One. Like Rasputin was actively advising them not to get involved in the war. And uh it was old Nicky II who really drove the decision to get involved in World War One just because he felt that uh Slavic pride was uh was at stake.
2: Yeah, because you know he lost the Russo Japanese war and it's like uh had to do something. Yeah, Talking about wars, by the way, one thing that also I didn't mention in the show, but this is important. Uh, our friend Uncle Joe, he was nominated for Nobel Peace Prize twice. <laughs> right? Ay ay ay! Once in nineteen forty-five and once in nineteen forty-eight. Right.
1: Apparently, it was for his efforts in ending World War II. Right. Great, great job, guys. Well, I mean. <laughs> Ah, man, the Nobel Peace Prize has a kind of a fascinating history. If you go back and look at the various winners, not all of them have been the most peaceful people. There have been some winners who are absolutely stellar examples of peaceful human beings, and there have been other winners who have uh, been less so. (laughs) So yeah, I I encourage everyone to go back and and look at the past winners of the Nobel Peace Prize. You'll see some names that you're like, oh, of course. Uh, And then you'll see some other names like, really? So, uh, yeah, check it out.
2: <laughs> out of everything else, peace prize is, when it comes to sciences, I think Nobel Prize is really, really good. The Nobel Peace Prize is a bit of a, mm, yeah, <laughs> kind of strange. Yeah. In a way, it's, it's also, this this kind of represents the whole Stalinist thing, really, because Stalin could have, like, actually acquired the prize, that would be... That would be interesting. I don't even know if he'd accept it, because that, that's what really also separates him from the further leaders on, because a lot of criticism on Stalin comes from Khrushchev. Right, yes. And, and from Brezhnev and those later leaders. And and here's the joke that Brezhnev was four times the of the Soviet Union. Okay. Stalin technically was once, and he just wore his one star. He thought, you know, hey, giving himself more medals would be bad. Yeah. So when you see Stalin, he actually the only medal that he wore was that one for, you know, winning World War II. That was it. Right. he literally wore no other medals, even though he had by this point become the hero of everything and the savior of mankind and, and all the socialist republics together, if you believe all these things. Right.
1: That's kind of crazy. Yeah, well, that was, that's another surprising thing about Stalin is because, you know, I, I think many of us popularly know about the cult of Stalin and the whole exaltation of him uh, in Soviet society and the, the fact that he was sort of puffed up and was kind of uh, made out to be sort of more than a man, but he himself in at least publicly kind of adopted this like, ah, shucks attitude, right? Like he's like, no, no, I don't deserve these accolades. I am, but a servant of the people. He had this very sort of humble thing that he did. And I I wasn't really sure by the end of it, how much of that was performance and how much of that was um, honest Uh, If it was a false modesty or if it was a real modesty. I mean, obviously, you know, he was allowing the Stalin cult to kind of grow and get larger. There's a lot of evidence that shows that he thought that having himself as sort of this sort of godlike figure within the society was a good thing for society. But then anytime he was um, given praise in person, he was all like, oh, comrades, comrades, this is this is far too much. I'm not a god. I'm just a guy. You know, so it's, uh, that was another kind of contradiction that I saw. And none of the uh, historians really know, or the ones that I read anyway, how much of that was just honestly who he was or how much of that was a all part of the act.
2: Then again, I think, I think some of it definitely wasn't because, well, for example, here's a letter of uh, written in 1928, mm-hmm. uh, 8th of September. One of the interesting things is that Joseph Stalin, from his place of rest, writes a letter to his wife at that point. uh, Al-Lieva. Right. <clears throat> Tatka, I got your letter. Books too. Couldn't find anyone to teach me proper English. Oh well, nobody here in the dacha. Please find someone good and send it to me. I've already started to cure my toothaches They uh, pulled out uh, my rotten tooth, and, and then they're basically working with the, everyone else. Everything's going going quite well. Basically, the doctor thinks that he'll finish my tooth thing at the end of September. I never moved out of this uh, sanitary and don't even want to go there. I feel myself much better. Well, you know, getting better now and then. Sending you lemons. You will find them very good for you. (laughs) What are the things up with Vashka and Satanka? Kissing you. Love you very much.
1: You're Joseph. Right. Right. That letter sounds like a phone call that i i have with my grandmother every now and then <laughs> hey grandma how you doing and she's like oh my tooth hurts <laughs> yeah and this
2: is this is like very very common things cuz uh, well, i'm sorry because i translated this on the go here but but like, sure. this is what i use for my show cuz apparently the guys from russian communist party they have saved up all of these letters and most of them are like this and like his response to stalin also like i'm not reading all of it but like <clears throat> Hello, Yosef. How's your health? Or thanks for the lemons. They were very nice. (laughs) And then then
1: she just goes on for the most ordinary things. Right. Well, they were still people. I mean, and that's... I'm glad that you kind of picked up on, you know, that theme in my series is that, you know, even the most terrible people or the people that are behind some of the most stomach-turning atrocities, they're still people. And they still do boring human things like... Write letters to each other about lemons and toothaches. It's important to remember that because it reminds us that it's everyday people or boring people or regular people. I think maybe that's a better word than boring, but regular people who get themselves into positions of power and then can use that power for great good or, you know, great evil. The thing with Stalin is it's,
2: it's both. At least in his eyes. Right. For one, uh, later on that year, Stalin uh, writes in his speech about the tasks of the agrarians. You see where I'm going with this. Yes, right. About the collectivization. He writes, quote, we have fallen behind from the developed countries by 50 to 100 years. We must run this distance in 10 years. Either we do this or they will crush us. Right. And then he, you know, well, did it. Uh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's the thing. He, he seemed to think that what he was doing was making the country better or that he was fulfilling a historical destiny that had been foretold in Marx or had been best articulated by Lenin. Um, so he believed that collectivization wasn't just done to kill a bunch of people, although some Ukrainian historians think that it, it was, and I don't have the expertise to really argue with them. But everything else that I've read suggests that based on especially the quote that you just read out there, he was doing this because he thought that this was the only way to get to that communist future, to get to that world where human suffering would finally be alleviated. And yet along the path, it's like, well, yeah, some people are going to have to suffer, because there's no no suffering without a whole lot of suffering. And so that's how he justified it, I think, you know? That's how he was able to look at, you know, papers coming across his desk telling him that, you know, millions were starving and go, this is fine or, you know, what maybe this isn't ideal but let's keep going because I'm telling you right around the corner the good times are coming. That's how I think he deluded himself. He reminds me of of a lot of people I even know in my own life who when they get fixated on the completion of a project, that becomes an end onto itself. It's all about finishing the project. It doesn't matter how backwards the project is or how brutal the task has become. Finishing the project is the important thing. And I think Stalin is that on a massive scale and it also kind of shows because
2: you know by this point you've understood that soviet union was massive massive bureaucracy yes throughout its existence soviets were uh Obsessed with all sorts of ministries and, and laws and, and, and all this bureaucracy. And one of the reasons is actually Stalin, because if you look like at NEP era, the new economic policy era, and Soviet Union in the Leninist era, then you don't see this. You see charismatic leaders and speeches and flags and everything. Right. But then, well, when you know, when Stalin basically makes general secretary to be the top position to be, literally that's his greatest achievement there right and then you can understand that if if a person who has been an administrative clerk and a bureaucrat becomes the most powerful and he has become this thing due to bureaucracy then you can understand why you know he he stuck to that and how it actually left a mark on the Soviet Union and which then later culminated in Perestroika where Gorbachev even wrote that this bureaucratic state must go because everything's just there's too much of the system itself. Yeah. So that's kind that's of interesting. So this is why kind of the murder quote, this also makes sense. And, you know, you have
1: to kill 100 kulaks right. oh. per week. Right. Yeah. And uh, God, I thought of that, the the unique type of horror that that would be. Like, I don't know if you have ever been caught up in a, a bureaucratic error or a bureaucratic mistake. And you've tried to argue your way out of it. It, it is the most frustrating thing. But now imagine that your life is on the line, right? Like I, I can only imagine if the, the agents of the state come to your door and they're like, well, you're a Kulak. And you go, how am I a Kulak? I'm not. There has to have been some error here. And they're like, well, your name's on the list. And you're like, my God. Like it, I, I know even on like small scale things, like I'll tell you a personal story. One time my name got associated with uh, a phone bill that wasn't mine. Like someone didn't pay their phone bill. And I have kind of a distinctive name, right? Sebastian Major. That's not a super common name here in Canada. Um, there aren't too many other Sebastian Majors. But someone named Sebastian Major had not paid a phone bill and it was, you know, they owed like $700 to one of the phone companies here in Canada. And so they were coming to me and being like, you owe us 700 bucks. And I was like, this isn't me. I've never had uh, a contract with this particular company. You've got the wrong person. And they were just like, well, your name's on the list. And it was the most frustrating thing. And it literally took me like three years. And I went to the police eventually to get like, to get this sorted out. It was, it was so frustrating. And that was just over like, you know, 700 bucks I knew I I didn't owe anyone now imagine that but your life and the life of your family is on the line like my god like I I thought about that a, a lot just like that feeling of powerlessness and frustration when a bureaucratic error has gone you know not in your favor and then and then you die like oh my god I think that's a unique type of hell you know See, the thing is that there is the
2: saying that there is a criminal law, we'll find the guilty one. Right. That's the thing. You know, you, you find a person and you'll, you'll, you'll find something that he's done wrong. The infamous 55th article of the Soviet Criminal Code for once. And imagine this, like Stalin and Stalin's era, the Baltic countries were occupied and annexed. Mm-hmm. And the instant the Soviets just pumped in and the government changed, they started deporting people en masse and and robbing things and making this culture of denunciation. Imagine this. Yesterday you lived in independent Latvia. Today, you're living in the Soviet Union and Stalin's ruling over you. Right. Oh, and suddenly it's illegal to own um, even depictions of your old country's flag, your national anthem, and all sorts of symbols of old previous bourgeoisie era times. So, yeah, literally, if someone hated you, he can denounce you and, you know, the nice men will arrive and then they'll find that, hey, you haven't thrown out
1: all of your um, old coins. That's a crime. Right. Right. And then what you kind of learn when you start looking at the purges of the late thirties is if you were someone that was not ethnically Russian, it made you more suspicious. Even if you had been nothing but the ideal Soviet citizen, especially if you were, you know, a Kazakh or someone from one of the, you know, Central Asian republics. And I would imagine also if you had been a, a Baltic person, that just made you suspicious right off the hop. Yeah, just because it's like, well, you're not you're not an, an ethnic Russian. It's like we never wanted to be part of this. <laughs> you know, it's uh- meanwhile more quotes from Stalin. This time
2: from 1933. <clears throat> It hasn't been existed and it can't exist in the future in any case that someone in the Soviet Union would become suspicious and would be a target of investigation just because of his nationality. Right. (laughs) Joseph Stalin, page 258, Collected Works,
1: volume 13, by the way. Right, right. I mean, and then we know from the records that people of ethnic minorities within the USSR were disproportionately persecuted during the purges. I mean, of course, and the great irony of that as well is that Stalin himself was a member of an ethnic minority. You know, he was Georgian. He spoke a different language. He always spoke Russian with a, a Georgian accent. Yet another contradiction and yet another irony in a life that is full of them. Yeah, but then again, one of the, I also made into a lot of
2: jokes, at least. That's why I love the Soviet jokes, and that's why I also highly recommend that. It's just a joke, comrade. But yeah. That's awesome, because one of my favorites is that uh, Stalin calls Beria and states, Ah, oh, comrade Beria, I, I lost my pipe. I can't find it uh, anywhere. And then Beria says, He'll deal with this, of course. A couple of hours later, Stalin just, you know, calls Beria again and says, Hey, uh, I found my pipe. I had left it, left it on the table uh, after night's drinking yesterday. And Betty just sighs and says, oh, I have already arrested 25 people in this. And they're all fucking admitted their fault.
1: (laughs) Mm. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, you have to laugh. You have to laugh so you don't cry. It's like, oh, I, I found my pipe. I guess all those people, all those confessions we got were maybe not so legit (laughs) no this is this is uh, this is kind of the soviet era humor which also was was born
2: in soviet era and and here's the joke it's not about stalin but uh, this is one which i'm going to be actually mentioning in my speech in harvard when i'll go to the uh, sound education conference you should too everyone should go but uh, here's this joke that uh, it's about brezhnev and nixon they're uh standing next to Niagara falls and they're just discussing some politics, but then they decide to, you know, talk about their bodyguards and how cool their personal bodyguards are from the Secret Service. So they both basically order uh, the bodyguards to jump off the falls. And the American one, he just, you know, responds, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Nixon, I have, I have family and, and friends and kids, and so I, I, I can't do it. Then Brezhnev orders his guard to jump, and the guard just instantly, without thought, just just starts jumping, and he just pulled back in the last second by by the American bodyguard, and then confused Nixon asks, "Well, why, 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 why did you do that?" And the Soviet bodyguard obviously responds, "Well, you know, Mister Nixon, I have family and friends and kids." <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, right. Ay yeah, <laughs> Uh, I like that one. I like that one.
2: It's it's pretty good, and this kind of. Says the whole thing because it also kind of ties up everything about Stalin. Because the same words said um, by someone else and said by Stalin can mean wildly different things. Stalin himself can mean wildly different things. Mm-hmm. And for one, obviously, we're using Sebag Montefiore here, but the statement about how Stalin, anecdotically, has stated to his son that no one is Stalin, I'm not Stalin, you're not Stalin. Yeah, Stalin's the one out in the press.
1: Yeah, I love that quote. That's that's plausible. That's that's plausible, actually. Yeah. No, totally. And I, uh, led my, cut a cold open and my final part of the series was kind of built around that quote because I, I found it so remarkable. Again, a lot of the, those kind of quotes from private conversations, uh, are sometimes hard to pin down. And, but if he said that, and he probably did, and there's a good, there's good reason to believe that he did. Then it means that he understood his own cult way too well. Like he, he got it. He knew exactly what he was doing. And I think that's one of the greatest myths about Stalin that's out there usually being put out by people that are apologists for Stalin is that he didn't know what was going on in the Soviet Union, that he was, you know, working away, trying to do the right thing. And then something like mass starvations occur and he was ignorant of it or was somehow not involved with it or the purges get underway. And the one story that's out there is that it was all low-level party people and uh, kind of overzealous NKVD men who were behind the purges and that Stalin somehow didn't know about it. Of all the stuff that I have read, Oleg Klevniak and Stephen Kotkin, these guys sort of remind you time and time again that Stalin knew everything that was going on in the USSR. Everything that was done by the government, he had a hand in. He rubber-stamped everything and most things were his plans also
2: he ran a massive secret service network who spied on each other independently he read and compared their data When i'll get to the stalin and his spy
1: network thing yeah
2: oh my the other myth is that it's it's basically from people who also take it too far is that Stalin was this crazy maniac and this bloodthirsty monster. Right. But you know what? This is worse because if you guys play Dungeons and Dragons, then I would state that uh, Hitler was chaotic evil. Stalin was lawful evil by by D&D standards. Right. And yeah, like you said, what's worse? Being killed by a chaotic crazy guy or being methodically annihilated in bureaucratic terms
1: by a massive state apparatus? Right. And... It's what makes him so complex to study. It's easy to just, you know, hate Hitler uh, because Hitler himself was so hateful. And in fact, any sort of dictator or bad person from history who is so hateful and clearly hate is what is driving them. It's easy not to like them. It's easy to just be like, oh my God, that person's just clearly disgusting But Stalin isn't motivated by hate, not in the same way. He's motivated by ideals, and that makes it way more complicated. And it made it way more interesting to study. Um, It makes you reflect on your own political ideology far more. I had to think a lot about things that I had sort of taken for granted. That whole idea of like, if you could create a perfect society, to what ends would you go to do that? And Stalin was someone that had the opportunity to do that, and he was willing to commit atrocities. So there you go.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, to wrap this up, I, I think that Stalin was super complex, but I think he, at one point, stopped feeling emotions or understanding them in any way that we can comprehend, I think. Right. He certainly had them at one point, but I think he viewed having actual emotions and, and caring and these emotional things as a weakness. I, I, I think. As, is- but then again, he is very, he's he's very awe inspiring. After all, I mean, from what I've read about his personal life. I mean, escaping from exile and arrests so many times. Right. Wow he's a truly complex figure and that's why i'm doing these series because it's kind of interesting how this guy this little coba grows up to literally being one of the most powerful people on the planet earth sure he died but at least he died while he
1: was on the top stalin well at the end never lost right huh. well you're doing the uh the lord's work out there as they say christops uh, and uh, i wish you luck on the rest of your massive series on, uh, Olkoba. I tried to give you as many shout outs as I could, uh, throughout the, uh, Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, throughout, throughout my series, just because, you know what? I, I couldn't do a comprehensive series on Stalin just because there was so much. And, uh, hopefully, um, my listeners that want a, a really detailed examination of his entire life will, will come over and start listening to the Eastern border and we'll, uh, get that, you know, beat by beat, uh, detail that you're you're giving in your series. So I hope, hope that if you want to hear about more historical myths, because you're
2: doing God's work here too, my my good sir. Cheers. Due to the fact that you analyze uh, all the historical myths, and well, as you can see, his history and politics are very frequently tied together and abused. That's very important that we you know separate the myth from reality. Yeah. And also, some studies are just super cool. My favorite episode of yours was, by the
1: way, uh, about who invented rock and roll. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I I had a lot of fun doing that. I'm I'm a huge music fan, and so that one didn't even feel like work. That was just way too much fun. I'm glad you liked it. Oh, great. Well, yeah.
2: Let's wrap this up and I am really glad to have you on the show. And this is a kind of a, a meta-narrative episode as well, allowing people to understand how crazy it is to actually study Stalin and mm-hmm. and how you should, you know, analyze everything in your own way. Right. Stalin has taught me that you should always do some introspection and reflection about the facts that you read because
1: there are multiple sides to literally everyone and everything that is uh that could not be more true that could not be more true. Thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And well, for the rest of you people, go listen to
2: our fake history right now. (laughs) And our our own next episode is probably going to be another one of um, the interesting special ones. (laughs) If you listen to my episode about how the Americans invaded and Canada too invaded Russia in winter, Mm -hmm. then uh, that's going to be something of, of that sort. But I'll keep it a bit of mystery now. Anyhow, thank you so much, Sebastian, for being here. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode and. Dasydanye, Tavares. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv. And we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our hosts in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you.
1: This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness.